Well, I want to welcome you this morning. Um, today is a very special and unique day. Um, the structure of our service is a little different, but also the way in which um, we're going to kind of talk and, and look in the Bible and, and speak truth today is going to be a little bit different as well. Now, when you walked in this morning, you were handed what we call a worship guide, and you'll notice the front of it says FAQ. If you're new with us, all October, all, the whole month of October, uh, we've been doing this series called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, where you have been submitting questions, anything and everything that you've ever wanted to know, whether it's about the Bible or Christian teaching or something you heard in the news, something you saw on Facebook, and you just want to know um, more about it or maybe what God says about it. Um, we've been using your questions to direct um, our, our teaching time every week in the month of October. And we've been asking you to submit questions in a number of different ways. And today, rather than me taking uh, a number of previously submitted questions, um, I have invited some friends of mine to be here as we're going to do a live Q&A panel um, where you're going to ask the questions and we're going to answer them um, on the spot and, and no promises or expectations, right? Um, so here's what I need you to do. I need everyone to grab your phone. I know 99% of you have them in here. So the first thing you should do is turn it on vibrate um, in case you haven't already. But, but here's what I want you to do. So I want you to take your phone. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to open up your Facebook app because I know you all have it on your phone anyways. Um, and what I want you to do is you can go to our church page, Element Church, uh, Colorado. And right now, this is the first time we've ever done this. We are live streaming uh, this panel session. So we're live streaming our teaching today on Facebook. And so what I'd love for you to do is, first of all, check into Facebook and then either share or like the live feed because that'll expose it to more people. More people have the opportunity um, to watch and to follow along with what we're doing. So this is something new we're trying. We've never done it before, but I'm going to ask you to, to kind of get involved. That'll help us. And um, another thing that I need you to do is I need you to open up um, your text message program. And what I want you to do is, as, you're, as we're going today, I want you to ask your questions. Whatever questions it is that you've always wanted to know more about. What does the Bible say? How should we as Christians approach this issue? Um, and so up on the screen, we've got details as well as inside your worship guide of how you can submit a question through text. And so to the number 22333, you have to use the keyword element and then whatever your question is. And so you're going to submit them now. Uh, Jay is going to moderate our discussion today, and uh, we'll get in as many questions as we have time for. And the quality of our time together will be completely dependent on Jay and his ability to emcee this whole thing, right? All right, so as, as we get started, let me do this. I need to introduce the people up here on the stage for you. Um, I've introduced myself. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, on your far left, uh, this would be Al Berea. Um, Al Berea is a church planting catalyst with the North American Mission Board, which is a lot of stuff that probably you're going, what in the world does that mean? So um, when we started this church a number of years ago, my wife and I, we started it through something called the North American Mission Board. And, um, and it's a uh, church planting agency that helps to equip and empower people to start new churches. And so he is the church planting catalyst for the Denver area and um, wasn't when I started, but is now. And so in some aspects, you could say, Al's my boss. Um, can I say that? Okay. Um, so Al spent mo the, his formative years, the first 20 years of his life in San Francisco. That's where he was born. Or not born. He's born here, raised in San Francisco. He's been back in Colorado for another 20 years. Uh, he is a big Giants fan. So, um, <laughs> right. Um, and has been a pastor himself. Al and I actually first met when we were both going to seminary. We both got our master's of divinity degree from what is now known as gateway seminary. And he is working on his doctorate of ministry degree currently. Uh, this is Earl Wagner. Um, Earl is currently the Dean of biblical studies and theology for the uh, college of adult and graduate studies at Colorado Christian university. Does all of that go on your business card? Uh, no. Oh. 
Um, so at, if you were to ever, if you've ever seen the commercials or thought about taking classes and courses at CCU, they offer a great online program and they give credit for previous professional experience. If you take any Bible or theology classes, he's the one who is head over that entire department. And because I do teach at CCU in the biblical studies department, I could also say he's my boss. Wow. Okay. What he said. Earl is not a Giants fan because for a number of years, he was the chaplain to the Colorado Rockies um, for several years. Then he moved to L.A., did some, some teaching and work in an academic institution there, and now he's back in Colorado with Colorado Christian University. I knew Dr. Wagner because he was my theology and Christian history <laughs> professor back when I was getting my master's degree. He got his Ph.D. in systematic theology from New Orleans Baptist Theological yeah. Seminary. And then on your far right, some of you already know him because he's been here before. Uh, this is Darius Holland. And Darius is not my boss, but no. he is he is the boss. Um, so Darius, uh, him and I, we met uh, while we were both working our Master's of Divinity degree at Gateway Seminary. He, we both have finished, and he is now working on his Doctorate of Ministry degree as well. Uh, Darius spent how many years in the NFL? Ten, Ten years in the NFL. Um, and was drafted by the Green Bay Packers, uh, won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. I should have told you to bring your Super Bowl ring. That's all right. You don't just wear that bling around everywhere? Man, that's all the bling I need. He played 10 years in the NFL and, uh, and ended his career at, at the Broncos. And so that he is now here. He is also a church planter has started New Life Church, True which, Life. True Life, that's what I said, yeah. True Life Church, uh, which is up in Thornton, and pastors there uh, as well. Good. Did I leave anything out? Anything else you want me to add? Okay. Perfect. All right. So we're, uh, we've never done this before at our church, so we're just going to, uh, to get started, and I thank all of you as we do get started for being here. Um, these are men that I trust and have had good, deep relationships with, and I'm excited that they chose to be here with us this Sunday morning. So from Element Church, I welcome you guys. Thank you for being here. And um, yeah, absolutely. And Jay, I'm going to let you start us off. Sounds good. Check, check. Is this on? Good to go. All right. Well, good morning, gentlemen, and uh, welcome. So we're going to start it off. We're going to get really thick really quick here, I guess. Uh, do you think what is happening in the Middle East is part of the end times? We like to ask good questions here at Element Church, so be prepared. It's good. Gentlemen, anybody want to jump in? No, but I, I will say this. <laughs> Nobody wants to touch at this. Um, but I, I will say that, yes, uh, you look at Matthew 24, you, rumors of wars, uh, you see the the picture, I believe, uh, that the writer uh, of the Gospel of Matthew is trying to illustrate to us is that it's going to be far worse uh, than that. Uh, the earthquakes, the things that are taking place are all signs um, of end times. So uh, the quick and short answer, yes. Um, however, it's not limited just to that. Yeah, I, I would concur with that. And I think the idea of, of an end times kind of viewpoint as um, kind of going to the place of saying we're almost there is, is kind of a dangerous thing mm -hmm. because if we look in scripture, they, they've been saying that since the writers of scripture were, were putting pen to paper or whatever, tablet to stone, whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's that, that idea of, of we're not necessarily looking for, we're not necessarily looking for, um, for an end, uh, but we're using these events, um, as, as cited at Matthew 24 idea, what we see in, in the book of Daniel, what we see in Revelation, um, as inspiration for us to continue to do the job. We, we, have, we have a job to do. It, it has never, uh, there's never been a time limit other than what God has set apart as, as that time when he will make all things right with the fulfillment of, of the gospel in that idea of, of God writing and ultimately writing forever uh, what was messed up at creation. And so I think that, that or not creation, I'm sorry, post-creation and the garden, um, I think that, that the idea of, 
of looking for the signs is not necessarily unhealthy. Jesus says to be aware, right? But it, it shouldn't limit us in our perspective of of saying, okay, we can we can relax now. We can we can stop sharing with our neighbors. We can stop making disciples because it's almost over. And I, and I'm I'm always cautious when I when I get to that point. Mm-hmm. I just pile on, I guess, too, just from a historical perspective. I mean, people have been saying, oh, Jesus is coming back this week. They've been saying that for <laughs> thousands of years, seriously. Um, and and Paul, he, he wrote in such a way as to indicate he thought he was going to be there when Jesus returned. So that's been, you know, not quite 2,000 years. So so what what Darius and Al both said, you know, just, yes, it's part of it, but it's always been a part of it. It was even worse back in 1200 when the Crusades happened in the Middle East. It was even worse back in 700 AD when the Muslim conquest swept through uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And um, I think it's good to get a historical perspective as well as a biblical perspective that things have been really bad over there just pretty much for the last 4,000 years. <laughs> really, they have. And, and so to think that, that our time is the time. Uh, that, 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 that's a little dangerous. It's a little dangerous when you put all your eggs in that basket and think that, oh, well, next month Jesus is coming, right? No, we don't know that. We don't know that. So it's good. Yeah. I, I, my first thought was when the question was asked is every generation since Christ has thought their right. generation was the last, but eventually some generation is going to be right. Right. And so we should live as though it could be next month. I mean, that should, I mean, the, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, as is often put, it's always put in, uh, be prepared and live as though it's coming. That's like, cause you don't want to be caught unprepared or unaware. So, yeah. and speaking of end times, how should Christians approach this voting season? <laughs> That was an amazing segue, right? Yeah, there. That was, was good. That was very creative. I've been planning that since I looked at the question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess without being politically based. You hold that. Darius is pretty passionate about this topic. Uh, is that what it is? Is that I'm, I'm basically a scapegoat has to go first, I guess. I, I <laughs> yeah. sat in the wrong seat. I'll, I'll go with you. This I'll is go not with the you. seat I want to go with. I'll, I'll jump in. Save Darius here. Um, I, I, I brought something as an illustration. This is a, this is a magazine called Christianity Today. Uh, some of you may be aware of it. It's, it's been around for 60 years. This is their 60th anniversary issue. And um, it actually was founded by Billy Graham. You've probably heard of him. Um, and, and this is the only edition that they have ever put out where they provide endorsement for candidates. And let me say endorsements for candidates. So, so they have three articles in this magazine. And they, and they say at the, in the editorial beginning of it, they have never endorsed a candidate ever. But this year they have a Christian writer who endorses Hillary Clinton. They have a Christian writer who endorses Donald Trump. And they have a Christian writer who says, I'm not going either way. I'm, I'm, I'm a third way where I'm not voting for any of these people. The point being, this is such a big, huge, contentious issue. And I think if we, if we get too far into the rhetoric and into, into so much that's being said now, we'll lose what's most important, which is our Christian testimony. Mm-hmm. And we'll tie our faith, mm-hmm. hear me now, we'll tie our faith to the rise and fall of a particular political candidate. Mm -hmm. That's never been good. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, on the back, it says, you know, here's an ad for some group that hope for America, and it says, uh, not in an elephant, not in a donkey, you know, the parties, (laughs) but in a lamb slain who sits on the throne. And then it goes on to talk about that. So so my my first, my contribution to this question is, um, just just be real careful that that the people you vote for reflect the issues that you hold dear before God. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the two those are the two important things I think. 
before God, what are the issues that are most important to you? And given that, do what you need to do in terms of voting. Kind of general, but but I I think it kind of helps us orient ourselves in this weird landscape of of this year's presidential election. I'm going to add language, if you will, that uh, voting your convictions uh, versus voting your party. There you go. Um, yeah. I think that's a better way. I mean, for me, you know, no, it's, uh, good. it's hard because there's times when you start to uh, villainize an individual and we forget that the individual uh, is somewhat of a reflection of what we as a community have become. Um, and so, therefore, what we need to be careful of is putting someone or some individual and saying this is bad and this is good. I would go so far as that we would say this person, if you vote for them, they're not saved. They, they don't know what they're talking about. And I, I would be very careful. Uh, Paul says in Romans 10 that we are not to say who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Uh, so just understand that when we're saying this, uh, we, we recognize that God can use any person uh, you go to Romans 13, and you look at the actual government section, uh, and you see how we're to, to honor them, uh, we're to pray for them, we're to follow the laws. He does use governments. But w- what I think w- as believers uh, we forget is that if you go all the way back to our Old Testament, which is still part of the Bible, um, we, we, we see a picture of them choosing a king. And you see this picture of them saying, well, look at all the other nations and how they have a king. Right. So we need a king. And we forget that it's not that individual who um, we're kind of rejecting. What we're rejecting is the God of the creation and saying that we want to put them as our representative instead of saying our king is Jesus. And he's the one that we are the ones that we're called to follow. And in so doing, we vote with our king, not according to our party. Again, so I'm just adding that. Uh, maybe that language, if you will, is just voting our convictions versus voting for the party. You know, and to, and to piggyback off of that, it, you know, the first election I had the opportunity to be a part of uh, in voting was Clinton versus Bush one. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I think about the reaction of Christians at that time. Um, this is I, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, so it was uh, there was an ob- obvious le- uh, leaning, I guess, as in regard to political persuasion. And um, and in that place, uh, there was a lot of criti- criticism from the Christian community uh, from around the country and, and from churches in that region of saying, man, if we elect Bill Clinton, we're all going down. It's going to be terrible. It's going downhill. You know, same thing, second election with, with Bill Clinton. You know, we got further along, I, 2008, same thing. Oh, if we, if we go this way, it's all going to fall apart. We're, si- we're hearing the same thing. Again and again, and and I think a lot of what I've sensed over the years is it's less about the candidate and more about the Christian response to the legitimacy of that individual as put there by God. And there is an an argument to be made that says um, somehow this was a mistake. If we had just risen up as Christians, this never would have happened. I struggle with that according to scripture. Um, and the reality is, is, is what I've leaned on for years, and I, I take this back to when I was working at Colorado College in Colorado Springs, a, an extremely liberal campus, um, but one that we just embrace as an opportunity to truly uh, make disciples of individuals who had no understanding or knowledge about what it meant to, to live um, a Christian lifestyle. Um, and one that was... was uh, noticeably pluralistic, very, very liberal. It was, it, was, it was a difficult place to be. After 2008 in the, in the election of President Obama, we started the time prayer for our president. And we just, we just grabbed onto the verses that I, I'm going to read to you from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think too often we lose the ability to be dignified. Mm. We forget what it means to live quiet and respectable lives. And this counts in the way that we respond to those that are eventually put in power. For we know that God puts all kings in authority, but he is above all kings. 
And so going along with, with what my colleagues have said here, and I agree 100%, I think we take it another step as Christians to say as we vote our conscience, our morality, our beliefs, and our faith, and as we accept that the outcome ultimately doesn't redefine who our king is because our king is Jesus, um, our response to whoever is in power, and I, I hate, hate, hate this constant use of the term, we're voting the lesser of two evils, that's that's not healthy either. Uh, we're, we're not we're not voting. I mean, that's not where we're supposed to be. But the outcome of it, however it may end up, demands that we would respond in a quiet and dignified way and to say, "I will go forward as a Christian, praying for this individual, not necessarily for their salvation, although that may be part of it." Um, but it seems like sometimes it's a tool we wield. Well. They got in, at least I could pray that they'd be, sa- they'd be saved. Well, that's not ours to judge either. Ultimately, we are to just respond mm-hmm. in a prayerful state to say, Lord, you are in control. We trust you. Be with this person as they make decisions that, that impact not only this country, but this world, and ultimately every person in it. And may you be glorified in the midst of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, like in light of what Earl said on the first question, to put things in historical perspective, um, you know, when Paul writes that we need to be praying for our kings and leaders, when he writes in Romans, like you mentioned, that we are to be in submission to our kings and leaders um, as a way to honor God. I mean, those were happening in the midst of when so many Christians were thinking Jesus is coming back any day because look how evil and detestable the Roman Empire is. Uh, look how much bloodshed there is, how much corruption, uh, immorality is within our own government. Surely Jesus is coming back. Yet in the same breath could say we need to submit to those authorities and we need to pray for those authorities. And so I, I think that's the attitude that we should have. Um, and not, not like, well, as long as they do the right thing, then we'll submit and, and pray for them. But, but in the midst of even things that we may be very uncomfortable with, like as Christians, like, and, and if anyone had a reason to not, it would have been the early Christians in the Roman Empire um, far more. And I think just one other word, too, that may be helpful. And we don't ever do this at this church, but everybody in here has different church backgrounds. And um, I, there have been a lot of attempts of people in the United States to take promises out of the Bible that apply to the nation of Israel and to God's people and apply them and uh, read them in light of as though they're being said by God to America, and they're not. And we are not God's nation. We can be a nation that honors God, but we are not God's nation. That, those promises were not made to the United States of America. So we have to be careful, too, about how we read the Bible and making sure that we don't see America in it, um, that we want to honor God in all that we do. But I think it helps to have a clear perspective, too. Excellent, excellent. And just a reminder, if you're in this room or watching on Facebook, text ELEMENT to uh, 22333 and ask your questions so we can add to this list, get your questions answered here this morning. Uh, So speaking of of Israel, the Jewish nation, uh, do Jews go to heaven? And if if not, did they go to heaven before Jesus? And if they did, when did they stop? That is a good Who's question. Who's these softballs? <laughs> oh, seriously. <laughs> Could you uh, repeat that question? <laughs> it says, um, do Jews go to heaven? And if they did go to heaven before Jesus came, when did they stop? So I keep going last because it's so much easier, but maybe at some point... <laughs> I should start, yeah, but not be a good time but not here, that. so <laughs> this is a great time to start that um, okay, so um, man, there are so many aspects of that question that need to be divided up, and it'll be hard to answer every aspect. Um, number one, uh, did Jews go to heaven? Is that the first part of the question? Um, okay, number one, did some Jews go to heaven? Absolutely. Did some non-Jews go to heaven? I believe absolutely. Um, I don't think, although the picture of God's covenant with his people looked a little differently in the Old Testament, I don't think that we can attach an ethnicity to salvation. And so I think it's bigger than that. So I think we have to be careful about saying all Jews used to go to heaven and then Jesus came and now none of them do. Um, uh, although there are plenty of people who have preached that and taught that. I think we need to be very, very careful. Um, uh, Hebrews 11 um, says that, you know, Abraham, uh, 
believed God in faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that comes from Genesis 15, I want to say 7, but just 15 something. Um, so even Abraham's righteousness came by faith, not by works. And so that has been open um, to all people uh, who would believe in faith. Now, um, so yeah, so I think, I think that's the first piece of the puzzle that we need to put into. Um, so it's being saved by... By grace, as we would now read it in Ephesians in the New Testament, through faith. And, and I don't think that has ever not been true. Um, the law was not meant to save people. So the laws that, that God gave to the Jewish people were not meant to save them. Paul actually says that the purpose of them was so that more sin would come. God actually gave the law so there would be more sin. So that the people would understand that there's no law and no amount of obedience that would ever be good enough. And so that they would come to the place of seeing their need for God to intervene on their behalf. And that comes in faith. And so that's what we still believe. We still believe that it's in faith that we can't do it. God must intervene. Um, now, the only thing I'll tag on to the end, and that I probably can't answer very well, is I think the, the picture that we get at the very end of times, which I think it needs to be said, Revelations, uh, is a book of theological imagery. And I think we also have to be very careful about pinholing particular events or people in history with particular visions uh, and images in Revelation. Um, But I think that God still has a special plan for the Jewish people. How all that will work out in the end, I do not know. Excellent answer. Thank you for that. And I'll, I'll just add a little bit more. Romans 9 through 11 speaks to that issue. And Paul, as a Jew, is saying... I'd give my life if I could guarantee the salvation of, of the Jews, of my people. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, he talks about the, about the covenants. Mm-hmm. He talks about Abraham and his response in faith and how it was that response of faith mm-hmm. that saved him. And then he gets down to the very end of chapter 11. And he says, so, so has God abandoned his people? No, he has not. And he, and he leaves the door open for some, some kind of salvation from God for the Jews that basically two things he reveals. Number one, it's, it will be through Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, there's going to be some kind of salvation for the Jews mm-hmm. through Jesus by God the Father. But second, he never specifies anything more than that. Somehow, some way, God's going to provide a way for the Jews. And that's as far as he goes. And, and I think we are wise to go no further than that as well. They're obviously God's chosen people. He chose them. And that, that's not to be denied, and that's not to be just thrown on the trash heap of biblical history or whatever. Somehow, God will provide a way for them, but Paul never goes on to specify what that's going to be. So add those couple thoughts to all that your pastor wisely said. Well, and, and with that, I mean, it, it's a return to the, and Earl said it, I think that salvation and that, that faith in the promise, mm-hmm. right. ultimately it all leads to Jesus. And just right. as, as those those Jewish believers of of what would come as Abraham looked forward, as Isaac and Jacob, and you walk through that hall of faith in Hebrews 11, as it lays down all of these individuals, including non-Jews, as, yeah. as Rahab is mentioned right, in there. Right, right, you know, you right. think about these individuals, and Rahab was a prostitute <coughs> who, who in faith trusted and protected the spies as they were entering Jericho, um, and as a result, was rewarded, and her family was reward, rewarded with a physical salvation. And she's mentioned as being part of this spiritual salvation that would come later. Um, we look back, and that that it's it's a difference in perspective. They looked forward to the coming promise of Messiah. We look back to a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and so all of it points at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Every bit of it. And all salvation, we understand all salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. There is no other way to salvation. And, and you already alluded to it in Ephesians 2. For by grace you are saved through faith. Mm-hmm. That not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works so that no one should boast. It's not earned. It's not ethnicity. It's not any of the other stuff that lays around um, the periphery of Christian thought. Mm-hmm. In, in saying we, we can somehow make it. If we're good enough, if we do this, if we do that, or if we have the right heritage, if I have the right parents, if I go to church, if I do, it's none of that. It's the idea of faith in Jesus Christ 
and belief that, that God has raised him from the dead and that he is a live, risen king that we can look at, again, for our inspiration and for our hope. That's, that's what all of it points to. All of history points to Jesus Christ. Uh, I would just add, I think that when we're talking about salvation, um, where I'm very cautious is to say who will and who will not enter in. Again, I point back to that Romans 10 passage. Uh, it's, it's very concerning to me that we are talking about salvation when uh, Jesus is the author and the perfecter. So salvation comes through Jesus. And so therefore, we don't know who some that might profess um, may may not believe. Mm -hmm. And so we, we cannot make that distinction uh, regardless of uh, whatever, whatever ethnicity or political party or uh, value system in which someone might even portray could could deceive us a little bit. Uh, and Paul talks about Second uh, Timothy, these individuals who have a form of godliness. And so uh, I would I would go to the length of saying this. I think when we're dealing with the issue of the Jews, is remember Jesus himself was Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, so so obviously he does care yep. um, about his own. That's just the reality. Uh, and you'll see Paul say a lot, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Uh, he says that significantly because it was first to the Jew. Uh, the message of, of the very laws in which we know comes to the Jew first. Mm -hmm. However, that does not mean that that was um, somehow in a positioning them to be first in line. Uh, in that the response was to Abraham that he's going to be a father of many nations. Mm -hmm. uh, so even that picture... Uh, we don't want to limit it to one specific group of people. Again, that has further ramifications uh, when you look at the divide within our own communities. We start looking at people and going, well, that person does have the qualifications and that one doesn't. You see how this can be dangerous when you start doing that number where you're asking someone, well, you know, I believe that that person is safe. You do? How, how do you know that? You know, um, I, I, just, I just want us to be careful for that, that specific reason. Mm. All right. Is, uh, what happens if someone dies before they were old enough to make a legitimate faith decision? I really didn't submit yes, this. Did. I swear I didn't. Yes, you did. So I joked, yeah, right? I joked, yes. I joked with Earl um, that I was going to submit a question like this. I swear I didn't. The reason is he wrote his PhD dissertation on traditional views of in infancy salvation. Is that the title of your dissertation? I joked. I swear I didn't. Oh, there we go. And I didn't tell her to either. Well, let me jump into that. It's, it's actually, it, 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 it's a really good question. It is. And particularly as... Uh, as Baptist people, not necessarily Baptist, but, but confessional people, people uh, of more non-liturgical um, traditions, Baptists have, have had to struggle with this for a long time as, as a representative group of the, the larger group I'm talking about. So, so back up a little bit. Uh, the way the Roman Catholic Church solved this problem back in around the year 400 or so um, St. Augustine, you may have heard of him, Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. Um, his, his idea was that if children were baptized by the church, then they would go directly to heaven. And so that was the teaching of the church for a long time. You get them, get them baptized as soon as you can, and don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. They're good. Okay, so when Baptists came around, along with other groups, talking about the reality of believer's baptism, where mm -hmm. salvation occurs as a result of your choice, you choose, you pray, you become baptized as a reflection of, of your salvation decision, then all of a sudden that opened up this huge issue about those who are unable to make a decision, infants, those who, uh, and, and you can also lump in there people who are, um, intellectually challenged who who can't who just can't make that decision what do you do with those people if you take infant baptism out of the equation 
then you have a big question to deal with. So, so that is the question. Those who are unable to make a salvation decision and they die before they're able to make that decision, what, what happens? So Baptists, and I'm, I'm, no, I'm not even going to go there. I, I'm not going to give you the litany of all the different approaches to that. But basically what, what people, and again, I'm using Baptists as a representational group, the larger group of people who affirm the need to make a salvation decision to, to, to gain eternal life. So Baptists as a representational group came to the conclusion in various ways, and this is what made it an interesting dissertation, but I'm not going to go there. The issue is because of throughout Scripture, God's love for children. Throughout Scripture, for even those verses that say, like in Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. The emphasis on that, that broad understanding of, of guilt is, is always implied and aimed at adults, at those, none is righteous, no, not one, probably referencing adults. Because anytime scripture references children, it's never to the issue of children are born guilty. Uh, now, some within the Baptist um, umbrella under the Baptist umbrella would would say that a very a very s- small minority and for different reasons, but because of God's love for children throughout Scripture, you remember the couple of instances when Jesus said, "Bring the little children to me," and He loved them, and and He said, "You know, if you have faith, faith is a child." That's 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 kind of the definer of salvation faith, faith of a child. So. So again, throughout Scripture, there's this high value that God places on children. Mm -hmm. And so in the absence of specific Bible verses, I think it's it's a legitimate and, 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 and real conclusion to Scripture to say that children and those who are unable to make a, a salvation decision, if they die before that point, they go to heaven. They go to heaven. Um, they're not born guilty, and God loves them, and they haven't even had the opportunity to make that, that salvation choice. Therefore, I, 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 believe, I believe fully that those children and those people unable to make that decision go to heaven. I do, just because of the love of God and because I can't find Scripture that, that goes elsewhere. Now, here's an interesting side to that. You, you'd think, wow, for such a big issue... Why didn't God address that? Why isn't there a specific scripture that says everyone before the age of 12, uh, emotionally, intellectually, physically, goes to heaven? And, and here's why I think it's, it's good that God didn't say that. And I, I heard this from an article, and this, this is great. Had God said that, think of the past years. Go back to the Crusades that I mentioned before. If that was a specific scripture, think of all the children that would have been killed mm-hmm. To fulfill that. Oh, they're not 12 yet. Kill them. They'll go to heaven. And you think, oh, how barbaric, how horrible. Yeah, but that's the way a lot of people were for hundreds of years before we became enlightened. Um, why not? You know? So, so there, there's wisdom even in God appearing somewhat vague about that idea for the safety hmm. of children in a way. So one other thing to add to that. Um, you know, the way that, that, uh, that the law was set up for Old Testament Jews, the idea was that children were part of the covenant people um, until they were able to become adults, until they, you know, the whole bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah idea currently points back to that idea, that at about 12 or 13 or, or whatever it is, you become a person of the covenant. You become responsible for continuing this whole covenant idea. Prior to that, you're kind of protected by your parents as being people of the covenant. So that's another bit of, bit of uh, I think, biblical evidence, I yeah. guess you could add to this idea that, again, before they're able to make that decision, they're good. Yeah. I think, too, I think there's two other examples in the Old Testament that I, I think bring some somewhat clarity or at least some comfort from this issue, because we do have to admit that the Bible doesn't actually say either way. But number one is King David, 
uh, lost his firstborn with Bathsheba and uh, as a, a newborn. And in his prayer, post-mortem of his child's death, um, he prays and has full confidence that he'll see his child again. And so um, while it's not a, directly the Bible says this is true, David certainly believed it was true, and it's a part of our scriptures. So I think that we can take some comfort in. Uh, and then also, um, you know, we've talked a lot about it, um, the Israelites being freed out of slavery in Egypt. They wander. Uh, it's a long story. We'll just cover a few details. details. They, they wander for 40 years in the desert before they get to possess it, their promised land. Why did they wander in the desert for 40 years, in the wilderness for 40 years before they could inherit the promised land? Well, it's because the first time God brought them to the promised land, they rebelled. And he said, this is the land I've given you. I want you to go in and possess it. And they got scared and they refused to. And so God punished them and said, all of you will wander in the wilderness until you all die out. I'll let the next generation come in because you didn't have enough faith to trust me. But here's what he says um, as a part of that penalty for their rebellion in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so God did not hold the children liable for the rebellion of the adults. And he said, your rebellion will be punished. You won't inherit this that I've given you. Now, for your little ones who don't understand, uh, I'm not going to hold them accountable. They will get to come in. And while, again, that's about a very specific historical event about the promised land, I think it teaches us about God's character and the way he sees children. Well, it's a it's a great picture yeah. of that because I really, I mean, as, as we think about that wandering and that, that story of movement with Joshua across uh, the Jordan River and into that land of promise, uh, there is a, a great symbol of what it looks like for we as a people to wander mm. until we find that land of salvation as guided by God. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a critical way of looking at it. Um, you know, there is something, and, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, but it's called the 414 window. Um, it's within a, a, a salvation perspective between the ages of 4 and 14. Uh, that is the, that's the age gap where uh, most people, when exposed to Scripture, and exposed to the truth of, of Jesus, uh, turn to him. And there, there are more salvations in that four years old to 14 years old than outside of that. And it's, it's, I don't know how many of you that, that resonates with. I, I was in that window when, when I accepted Christ as my Savior. And so uh, as I think about that, and then I think about scriptures like Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Um, the emphasis that that the Bible puts on training up our children in the ways of God, um, and the imagery in this verse in the Hebrew um, has to do with being a midwife. It's a midwife uh, imagery of actually uh, massaging the palate of the newborn so that the newborn will suckle and take in nutrients. And it's the idea that as parents, as as individuals. Uh, as a, a father of four little girls, I have the opportunity to train them up and, and to love them enough and disciple them so that I can fill them with proper nutrients. You know, I, I have a, an opportunity to fill their lives with junk. I can buy them all the Cheetos they could ingest and they would eat them all. You know, I could fill them with nothing but candy. I could, I could just ruin them health-wise. Or I could give them good, healthy meals. And and when we think of what it means to pour into children and to love children and to nurture children with the word of God, really what that's saying is set your children up for a time when they can make that decision, when they can gravitate um, and whatever your theology in regard to that salvation experience, when when they can fully give themselves to God and understand that he has fully given himself to them. Um, prepare them for that. Nurture them. Because an absence of preparation is preparing them not to choose and not to go in the direction of the Lord. We can't, they're not just 
free to make their decision without influence. There's influence all around us. And so as we think about salvation and we think about children and the way they respond, again, I, I always tend to return to um, whether whether or not, and, and I agree with what's been said, but whether or not we fully understand what happens in salvation for those that are, are beneath that age of, of accountability or the ability to make a decision, I return to the idea of with the ones that I have, nine, seven, five, and three, that three-year-old, man, I'm pouring into her now. I'm trying. I'm doing my best to just give her little nuggets. And I, it, whatever happens, and, and God forbid, that's a scary thought, isn't it, as a parent, to, to have to wrestle with that decision like David did post-mortem. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do what I can now mm-hmm. to make sure that, it, that at, at my best, I filled them with the good stuff. Uh, real life, I think um, about a year and a half ago, my daughter got in an accident. Um, we didn't know if she was going to make it. Um, probably one of the roughest times as a parent, and, and I, I, don't, I don't take that lightly. And so your, your, your question is difficult because you, you don't know. You, you, you look at Scripture, and you're, you're saying there's, there's no real something I can point to and go, see, my, my daughter... She's fine. Uh, but what I do think we are trying to illustrate for you is that it is imperative that we take responsibility for what they call this word of righteousness and, and what we do with it in sharing, uh, even with a little one. Uh, sometimes we, f- we think to ourselves, they don't get it. And I'll never forget the day we were at home having family worship and my little girl listening to a song and her responding to it. There's, there's a freedom that she heard and she responded to it. Uh, Tasha, Tasha Cobb sings that song, um, The Chains Are Falling. And literally, she closes her eyes, raises her hands and says, I want this Jesus. And I believe in my heart that something about what Jesus was saying to her at that moment, she understood and she responded. And so when we look at Hebrews chapter 5, he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness and not solid, or, or excuse me, for he is an infant. That infant is the person, I believe, who cannot listen, hear, understand, and respond to that word. And I don't believe that age of accountability is at 12 or 13. It is when you understand God gives you permission slip, if you will, at whatever age to respond to that. And so our job, more than anything, is what uh, Al was saying, is to give them the word in a way in which they can understand so that they have the opportunity to respond. Salvation, again, belongs to the Lord, but my trust in my belief system is that our job is to present it. It's their job to respond. Mm, that's good. Probably have time for one or two more. Jay? All right. Again, if you have extra questions, we're coming down the bottom of it. Text element and your message to 22333. We'll get your question in. Um, what does the Bible say that God's wrath is? So before we answer this, I'm going to give you guys some insight into probably where this question comes from, because um, I talked about God's wrath in general a number of weeks ago, and I'll just give you some context, and then maybe we can answer this one quickly, and then we'll have time for one more. Um, so we've been preaching through the Gospel of John. Just as a church, we've been walking through it verse by verse. Um, and so in chapter 3, verse, I'll just start in verse 16 because we're all familiar with that one, so it'll give us some context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then the last verse of chapter 3 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so as I was wrapping up chapter 3, I read that and I set 
I made a statement, I made the allusion to, to verse 18 as well, and said that God's wrath is not a future threat, but a present reality for those who don't believe. So maybe we could quickly answer what, what is God's present wrath versus what is his future wrath. Uh, I'm going to jump on that and say this. Uh, if we do not have peace, meaning we're one with God, that means if we don't have that, we're separated from him, that's hell. Secondly, I would say this. You cannot have a hopeful expectation of the future without having relationship with him. And I don't care what anybody says about, well, you know, I, I, I believe, I trust, I think things are getting better. And I'll say, without Jesus, that's impossible. And so, therefore, my, my only statement to this particular issue is I just want you to imagine for a second not having hope. If you believe for a second that not having hope is enough to where you were like, well, I don't know if that's wrath. I just think that you would find yourself sh- struggling with your daily life without, not, without hope. That's enough for me to believe that wrath is present mm-hmm. here and now. Now, we can go further in showing how wrath actually comes about in different areas of our life. But ultimately, I, just, I, I mean, just jumping on that really quickly and saying without hope, it's impossible uh, to live out this life. I would, I would go with that. I'd go along with that, obviously. And the, and the idea behind it is um, putting off the ideas of, of wrath for tomorrow and, and thinking of wrath as it exists today. Um, I, I mean, I, I immediately had the thought of Romans uh, 1 mm-hmm. in, in the way that it, it quickly explains uh, kind of how God's wrath is revealed for us today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this wrath is already present. And and if I were to continue on with this, ultimately I would I would arrive at a place where it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And it goes on and on and on. And that idea that, that I want to stick with is sometimes the wrath of God is seen in, in the idea of God giving us up to what we want, mm-hmm. to what we desire. And if we desire to have no part in God, God will give us up to that. If we desire to separate ourselves uh, from the rest of humanity, sometimes God God's wrath can be seen in his giving us to be separated and the loneliness and everything that comes out of that there's a whole lot in this question that i think i i mean i would enjoy maybe a 12-week sermon series on, on, on wrath that. that's what we start on next the, week that's yeah. good the wrath of god series yeah yeah bring your friends <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i i think that ultimately what 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 i like to to do, and I mean, I've already explained this a little bit, but I want to want to avoid thinking it's something for tomorrow, and understand that it's it's something we can exist in today. But but the reality is that that we don't have to exist under the wrath of God, and, and praise be to Jesus that we we can be removed from that wrath, and and it comes through that again through that belief in Jesus Christ and what He does to reunite us with our Father. That's good. So you stole my answer. <laughs> so I was going to go to Romans one as well, and. Three times he says God gave them over or gave them up to. Um, he says, um, keep dropping stuff. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Two verses later, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Two verses later, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Uh, and so I think you're exactly right. The Bible teaches that we're slaves to sin and the worst part of God's present wrath, or at least one of the worst parts, is the fact that uh, he allows us to remain enslaved to ourselves and to sin. Um, And so I I think that's a part of the present wrath of God. And then just the next chapter in Romans 2.5, it says, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Mm -hmm when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so there is a present and a future reality to God's wrath that um, God's wrath may be that we stay enslaved to sin now. Uh, and his future wrath is that um, that enslavement to something else will last for an eternity. Um, yeah. 
All right. Uh, how can we share the gospel of Jesus without making it sound like a sales pitch? And you're saved this to last? Is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's the easiest question on the list. So. <laughs> it's funny. I have a PowerPoint made up for this, and I'm hoping you guys will stay afterwards. There will be. <laughs> <laughs> I I've I think we've talked about this at this church a lot before that the greatest way that you can share the love and the truth of Christ is by sharing your story and your testimony. Um, you cannot argue someone into heaven. Winning an argument, making someone else feel dumb or look dumb, does not make them want to love Jesus. And so I think the greatest thing we can do is to share our story about what God means for us, how He's changed us, what He's done in our lives. But also, we need to make sure that our lives represent that we actually believe those things to be true. I would, I would say this. Um, ask anybody about brokenness. Ask them about shame and see what their, their remedy is for that. Um, Paul says that we're to renounce the things that are hidden because of shame. But it's hard to renounce something when there is no gospel message. And so, so for me, I would just say, uh, without a sales pitch, tell me what do you do with your brokenness? Tell me what do you do with the things that you don't want anyone else to know about? How do you address that? Um, some might drink, some might have sex, might, some might you know, do whatever it is to cover it up, but the reality is, is that it's never answered apart from the gospel message. Mm. So the sales pitch, to me, uh, doesn't work because that's what it is. You're trying to sell them on something. But if they already know what they're struggling with and you allow for them to have that conversation with you, which most of the times we fail to let them talk and let us listen, um, they'll tell you, here's where my brokenness is. And then you'll say, okay, what are you doing with that? Most people do not have an answer. Um, they just assumed, well, sometime at some point it will get dealt with. And so I would just say let them talk with their talk about their brokenness. Let them talk about their shame. And then if you can get them to that place, and then hopefully it's like, would, do you want a different answer uh, than what you're dealing with? Uh, and I believe that's why it is good news is because it answers that question for them. I, I just add just a little bit to that and reiterate what's already been said. As you're having that, a great, great conversation that Darius is talking about, continue to love them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when you love people, that just throws everything off, yeah. you know, for them. It's like, wh- wait a minute, why, why, are, you, why are you loving me? They'll, they'll reel from that, and they won't have a defense for that. If you, you just love them, just love them. Do things for them without expecting anything in return. Let them know that, and that... That that is such a, a radical countercultural way to deal with people now, is just loving them, mm. and not for what they can do for you, not for who they are even, but just because God has given you the infinite capacity to love. You will never run out of love as a Christian, so you can just keep giving that away mm. all day long and not have to get anything back, because God supplies that through His Spirit through through the life that he's given you. So that's a really important thing to do as you're telling them. And one other quick thing, too. I'm no salesman. I've, I've never been in sales. I've never been able to be successful at that. And, but, but yet there's something not, not horribly bad about sales. You know, part, part, of, part of selling something is believing in it mm-hmm. enough to say, hey, I you know, I, I believe in this, and I want, and I want you to experience it. And and I, again, I, not as not a salesman, um, you hear you hear salesmen talk about it. good salesmen talk about things in that in that light. You know that here's a, here's a product, here's something that I want to help establish a need in the person's life, help them to see that they need the product, and then to say, well, all right, here there are your needs, like Darius said. You got brokenness, you got dysfunction, you got all this weirdness going on in your life. I got something that can help solve that. And that that's not a bad way to think of sales in that sense, you know, approaching people that way, all along the way, loving them. 
just don't offer them like a free jello mold in the shape of Colorado if they believe today or no. now. No, don't do so, that. Yeah. No, and sc- excuse me, I'm still reeling from the fact that you don't like Cheetos. <laughs> just you said that earlier and that just rocked me. Wow. <laughs> What's wrong with Cheetos? Well, we can we can talk about that later. There are we some can. health benefits to <laughs> it. <laughs> yes, there it's are. It's when the entire house is, has ha- prints <laughs> of Cheetos all over. It's amazing. You know, and Earl, in all seriousness, he, he you know, that love aspect, I, I think of Galatians 5, 6, and that's a life verse of mine. Uh, for neither circumcision or uncircumcision makes any difference. What matters most is faith expressing itself through love. Um, the law, uh, all of our techniques, all these different things that we use to either guilt people into salvation or bring them to a state where they feel condemned, and then all of a sudden yeah. we're like, but we have an answer. I think, yeah. I think the idea of it is, is leading in with that love. Yeah. Uh, maintaining that love and letting people know that you legitimately care about them. Right. I mean, that's huge. Yep. It's huge. I know it was huge in my life as I began to be discipled and truly understand my faith that somebody cared about me for more than a number. They weren't trying to use me as yeah. some means to go and brag to their Christian friends to say, hey, I got another one saved, you know, a notch up here. Yeah. It, it, you don't want anyone to feel as if they're part of some master plan for you to feel more Christian. It's ultimately you, you, yeah. you actually care about them. Right. You, you right. want the best for them, and you understand right. that the best for them um, is wrapped up in the name of Jesus. Yeah. And that, that he is the one that makes all things good and fulfilling. And the, and the promise that he makes for our lives, and that, that these individuals, we're hoping they, they see this as you talk passionately about what God has already done in your life, is... is is ultimately it leads them to a place where where they're not part of some agenda. They're not a they're not a tool or a, a means to an end. But but you're introducing them to the savior of mankind and the individual, the only individual who will give them the peace and the joy that they're looking for in their lives. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean everything else so true. And in that love aspect is is yeah. a huge part for me. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And Cheetos. And Cheetos. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you for being with us today. I know we could go on for hours, but we need to respect everyone's time. And tummies are grumbling and things like that. Um, for Cheetos. Everyone wants Cheetos now. Thanks, yes. Al. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, so I want to thank you. Will you guys join me in thanking them for being with us today? Uh, I really do appreciate it. And, and I from a personal standpoint, invited all of you here because I love you. You've meant a lot in my life and have been a good friend and also a mentor in a number of different ways. And so uh, I just thank you personally for being here and helping me uh, do this. And it means a great deal. So um, what I want to do is I want to pray for us as as we move into the final few moments of of our service together today. Uh, Lord, thank you for who you are. And, uh, Lord, we just are so blessed by your goodness and your grace. Um, Lord, and as we move into this last moment or two, I pray that uh, your presence would be known and felt in each of our lives. Uh, I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment uh, as, as we kind of come to a climax and a conclusion today. And we've talked about a lot. We've talked about love and we've talked about wrath. We've talked about future hope and salvation and security and eternity. Um, and more than anything, what we want you to know as you leave here today is the Bible speaks truth and hope for each of us. That love uh, is found in the Bible. That, that eternity is found in the Bible. That salvation is found in, in the Bible. And, and we want you to have that opportunity uh, to experience those things. And so just right where you are, um, I, I want you to know that, that, yes, we don't shy away from truth, that God's wrath is very present and very real and uh, will also be very real in the future, um, but that Jesus has provided a way through faith because of his love, because of what he's done, has provided a way for us um, to, to, re- to, to remove God's wrath from us. And if that's something that you've never done, it's something that um, you want if you come to that place like Darius was talking about earlier where, where God's given you that permission slip to believe, that you understand and you, you want to embrace Jesus and what he's done, I want you to take a moment now to, to pray that, 
to let Jesus know that you're ready, that you believe, and that you want to accept. Will you do that right where you sit now? Knowing that Jesus loves you and has given you an escape from the wrath of God. We're about to enter into a time of a response, and we do this every week. Our response is an opportunity for you to respond to who God is and His love and the salvation that He provides. Jay's going to lead us in one quick song. And maybe you want to stay seated and in prayer and in meditation. Maybe you want to stand and sing and celebrate the goodness and the love and the salvation that Jesus has brought and offered. Other aspects of worship are in taking and in giving. And we have a table in the back where you can take communion. You can take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup that represent the salvation that Jesus offers through his death. The night before his death with his disciples, eating his last meal, he broke bread and said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And he passed around a cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that will be poured out for you. And do this in remembrance of me. And so every time we go to the table, we remember his sacrifice. Maybe you want to make that as a part of your worship. Maybe giving wants to be a part of your worship. Our offering basket is there on the table. And we put it on that table on purpose because giving back to God is a form of responding to him and what he's given to us. And so we're going to open it up to you to respond as God leads you in this moment. Lord, thank you for who you are. Would you continue to move, continue to speak, continue to do what only it is that you can do in this moment and in this place.